it's lovely to be here. Thank you for that kind welcome. It was great. I have known Craig over many years, um, and it's wonderful to be here. And so uh, the hat, I suppose, in some ways I get to wear a lot of the time is with Evangelical Alliance and get to travel around uh, a bit with that. And I really enjoy that. Evangelical Alliance has been around for 170 years uh, around the UK. It's uh, the largest and oldest body representing Evangelical Christians. And I guess we want to unite the church in mission um, but also advocate and speak into the public square on media and other matters. Uh, I've forgotten all, or I've run out of all my proper printed materials, so uh, this says name and email if you want to get our Think Friday. Uh, anybody here heard of Think Friday or get that email? A few people. So that's just where we give a couple of minutes each week uh, of something that's going on in the news. It says at the bottom, GDPR compliant. My office will have a fit. Um, but anyway, you can come and sign up for that. It's just a free email where we talk about uh, what's going on in the week from a biblical perspective. Um, and it really is GDPR compliant. Uh, but Craig's asked me to come and chat around sexuality and gender in a confused culture. I hope that's what he said, otherwise you're in for a rough uh, night. <laughs> so sex and gender um, is what I'm going to talk about. And if you expected something different, hey, no problem, I'll not be offended as you walk out. Um, so we're going to look at that um, sort of, uh, yeah, sexuality, particularly around same-sex attraction. We're going to look at gender and transgender and some of the issues in our, cult- in our culture. Um, so I'm going to start uh, with a little clip from a song that some of you might know by Macklemore and Ryan called Same Love. Uh, you might recognize this tune when it comes up. We're going to listen for a minute or two. That I was gay, cause I could draw. My uncle was, and I kept my room straight. I told my mom, tears rushing down my face. She's like, Ben, you've loved girls since before pre K. Tripping. Yeah, I guess she had a point, didn't she? Bunch of stereotypes all in my head. I remember doing the math, like, yeah, I'm good at Little League. A preconceived idea of what it all meant. But those that like the same sex have the characteristics. The right-wing conservatives think it's a decision. You can be cured with some treatment and religion. Man-made rewiring of a predisposition playing God. Oh, nah, here we go. America the brave. Still fears what we don't know. God loves all his children. It's somehow forgotten, but we paraphrase a book written 3,500 years ago. Bye-bye. I don't know. And I can't change. How many of you have heard that song or that beat or that tune? It's, it's age dependent. A lot have heard the rhythm and, and, uh, and that tune. That became the, the anthem, the gay anthem around particularly same-sex marriage in the States uh, about three or four years ago. Um, and I was speaking to some youth in our own church not very long ago and I played it. And these are like 11 to 15 year olds. And I was thinking they probably don't know that. That song was from a few years ago. But all of them hands straight up. That is an incredibly powerful piece of storytelling. The, the tune and the lyrics in that, I can't change even if I wanted to, even if I tried, I can't change. And it's not just about gay marriage because you can see the culture into which it's trying to speak. Paraphrasing a book from 3,500 years ago, the Bible, playing God, right-wing conservatives, saying that you can be changed. And so not only is it promoting one cause, it's having a good go at the culture around and what it might be saying. 
And I want to suggest that's one of the most powerful stories being told in our culture. And we have a real problem because we're not very good at telling our story. And so it's no longer about which one's right anymore, it's which one catches people. And so people have that tune in their head, they have that idea in their head, and they're saying, you can't change, even if I wanted to. And that's the story that wins in our culture, um, the power of story. The next slide shows uh, the cover, I think, of Macklemore and Ryan, that's the same love album. Uh, and on the right-hand side is a book called A Better Story by a guy called Glenn Harrison. Um, Glenn is a professor of uh, psychiatry in Bristol, and uh, he's written another good book called The, the Big Ego Trip. Uh, that's a book about Craig and myself. Um, so it was a best, bestseller. Not tell you who wins in the competition in that book. Um, but Glenn tells this story. He's retired just in the last year or two. And he's coming from a Christian, I mean, as a Christian. Uh, he's speaking of this and saying the 1960s uh, was the sexual revolution. And, and it transformed our vision of what sex and relationships could look like. And I had this incredibly appealing narrative around freedom and authenticity. I'm free to be whoever I want. And so that caught people. And the revolution won the hearts and minds of many people. And biblical Christians got defensive. And our reaction was to kind of be defensive into that space. And we didn't really tell a compelling vision for. We just said, don't do that. Don't do that. We drew boundaries and we drew lines and we never sold the alternative narrative. And that's Glenn's thesis here is we need to tell a better story. Because here's the thing, the sexual revolution promised more sex and more happiness. And guess what? We're having less sex and we're less happy with the sex that we're having. The facts are irrelevant. But that story captured the culture. Even though all the evidence says it didn't actually, it it didn't win in terms of truth claims and in terms of facts. Um, And so we need to get better at telling a story, the biblical story, of what the vision for relationships looks like in this moment. What it is to be a man or a woman of God in this culture. There's a theologian called Jacques Ellul, who you might guess is French. Um, He comments this, Christians take their place where two powerful currents meet, the will of God and the will of the world. And it's there that Christians will have to be both discerning and faithful and seeking to do God's good in our world. We're sitting at where these cultural currents meet. And we feel that if we're in conversation with somebody. Somebody says, what do you think about same-sex marriage? Oh, the currents are meeting. I've read the Bible and I think one thing. I hear the culture hit me with something else. What do you think about transgender? Well, I have some ideas, but I realize what culture might say if I say those things out loud. And so I want to suggest that we've got the whole story really badly wrong. The next slide popping up is uh, this. um, This is a really badly cropped slide by me. You're missing one part of the story. Okay, so here's the biblical story if we were to summarize into four main movements. Ishan, (laughs) creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The full biblical story. And the the, the church historians tell us that for 1860 years we told that fuller story. Um, And even that obviously is a summary of what's going on. And then what began to happen 150 odd years ago was that people were moving into the cities and into towns to get work. They weren't in connection with church in the same way. People began to drift from churches. And so churches in response began to have kind of missions. Prior to that, you didn't need a mission because everybody went to church. So you had these kind of missions, tented missions in the early stages of evangelistic crusades. What happened was you got people like Charles Finney, who was an ex-lawyer, and I'm a repentant lawyer myself. And so what they had is they had a night to try and convince somebody of Jesus. 
So back before that, people like John Wesley and Charles Wesley might have heard of, they, they would have been in places for weeks and months. And if you came forward and said, well, I'm convicted about my sin, they had well, at the front the penitent's bench. It was right here for the sinners, the sinner's bench. They were in no rush for people to become Christians. They wanted them to understand the full story. But when you had a captive audience only for a night and you thought you had half an hour with them, you began to shrink that story. You couldn't get the whole of creation in and you couldn't get the whole of the restoration story in. So what began to happen is we shrank the story down. So I'll pick on Craig because I do know about him and his inappropriate stories. So I would say to Craig as a lawyer, Craig, you're really bad. It's true, we all know it. So I've created the problem. Craig's really bad. That's the fall part of the story. Craig, you're really bad. But it's okay because I'm a lawyer. I've got a solution to your problem. Jesus died for you. Redemption. And so in that moment, I've individualized the story right down to Craig. I've created a problem and I've answered the problem. And in that moment, in that half an hour, I go and say, Craig, you've got a problem, but it's okay. Jesus died for you. And that works to an extent. And many of you have been raised in church circles have probably heard many, many versions of that story. We shrink it down, but in doing so, we strip out creation and the goodness of all things, and we strip out the restoration of all things, and that leaves us with a problem. And so the historians say that we lost our cultural currency, we lost our cultural impact, because it was a highly individualized story about saving souls. Your soul's going to go off to heaven when you die. And in between, we kind of sit and twiddle our thumbs, not really knowing what to do with our lives. Now, apparently now in culture, it's really awkward to say you're really bad. I find that remarkably easy with Craig. But anyway, um, so now I don't say, so there's two ways to solve this problem. This is the bad way. Now I don't say, Craig, you're really bad. I just say, Jesus loves you. That's so thin, so rubbish as a story. It doesn't work. It's arguably not the gospel. In fact, it's not arguably. It's just heresy. That's not rich enough. That's not deep enough. That's not biblically true enough. So we've got this really thin story. Jesus loves you. And we wonder why it doesn't work. It's not what the Bible says. It's not enough. It's not rich enough. It's not deep enough. And then we wonder why we had a cultural current like transgender or around sexual orientation and same-sex attraction, homosexuality. And we wonder why our God story doesn't seem to work. Because we played the individualized game the same way as everybody else. We shrunk it down into an individual moment of saving Craig's soul, getting it ready to go to heaven, which is some sort of floaty place where we go around in fluffy clouds playing harps. And then we wonder why it doesn't work for him when he bumps into trouble in his marriage and his parenting and in real life. And so rather than shrink it down further just to redemption, I think we need to restore it into the larger story. Creation, the goodness of creation. Where do Christians always start the story? Fall. You're bad. You've got a problem. Sexuality. You've got a problem. You're same-sex attracted. Gender. There's a problem with transgender. We always start with the problem with fall. Where does the Bible start? Genesis 1. Genesis 2. Good. 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 If you think I'm repeating myself, it's because the Bible does. Good, I think, one more time, and then very good. That's where we have to start the story in Genesis 1 and 2. There's so much that unites us in common humanity if we start the story in the right place. Everybody is a divine image bearer. Every single person is made in the image of God. That's our start point. That's our common humanity. That's our bridge build. You only get to a universal declaration of human rights if that's true. And so we start that story in a different place. Every single person is made in the image of relational God. Made for relationship with him, made for relationship with one another, made for relationship with this earth on which we've been placed. God is at his center three in one. 
We just proclaimed it in the doxology there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is relational being at his very core. We are hardwired for relationships. But what do those relationships look like? Genesis 2, the first earthling was created. The first human being, rather unhelpfully translated, sometimes as a man or male or Adam. It's all the same Hebrew word. We can have a fight about this later. But anyway, so we've got the first earthling. What happens to the first earthling? The first earthling is put to sleep, out of which is taken a rib. What do we create? The first gendered being is a female. The rubbish that is left behind is the male. <laughs> oh, controversial. Um, and so, and then the man says, This is the last flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. He shall be called woman, for out of man she was taken. And therefore, a man leaves his mother and his father, extended family unit, put in context, to go to be with his wife, and the two become one flesh. Relational paradigm set in place there. The framework for all future relationships. That the only exclusive one flesh type of relationship is male female. And in that moment, man leaves his mother and his father, but the extended family is pulled into place. And we set in a paradigm for marriage, family, extended family relationships. Now, not saying that there's any... We're going to come back and talk about singleness in the process of this, but that is the only acceptable form of relationships and framework. So, moving on maybe to the next side. Let's see where we go. Let's talk about sexuality. Um, Baby, you and me. Next slide. Um, Okay, so when it comes to same-sex relationships... I'm really not good at singing and entertaining. Um, there only are five main passages. I'm not going to kind of go into them all in detail. So having established that framework, and I want to argue heavily that Genesis 2 is where we establish the framework for relationships. So the story starts one and two, creation story retold. It's good, it's good, it's good. We are all divine image bearers. We are all made for relationships. This is the form of relationship that we are made for. That's the good start of the story. Genesis 3 is the fall. I'm not going to dwell on that, not just tonight, but that's where we know and, and where does it impact who we are, our relationships with God, our relationships with one another, and our relationships with the earth, our work, all the consequences of the fall. So we want to start our story with the good, then we go through the fall. And then in relation to same-sex attraction, homosexuality, the, the, the biblical story doesn't have a huge amount to say about it, but when it does, it's consistent on it. First reference is in Genesis 19, the story uh, of Lot's visitors being raped by the men of Sodom. And where we get our term sodomy from. If that's the only passage, it's, it's not a great one. It's about gang rape and it's about violence. That's not what I want to base my arguments about same-sex attraction on. It's there, it's referenced, no problem with it. Leviticus 18 is where we find that probably one of the key texts. That it's an abomination for a man to lie down with another man as you would with a woman. And the death penalty is prescribed for that. That seems really harsh. Have we picked that one out? No, it's the same thing you get for adultery. It's the same thing you get for incest. It's the same thing you get for bestiality. The the biblical text doesn't shy away from this stuff. It says if you move outside the framework set down in Genesis 2, then that's not good for you. And it says that's not healthy for the people of Israel. If you're choosing to follow God, then that's not an acceptable way to live. And it sets down the same punishment for any deviation from the frame of relationship that it's set down. And that's it in the Old Testament. Everybody thinks this is big Old Testament stuff. There's essentially a fleeting reference in Genesis 19 and then those set of verses in Leviticus. So then I hear this argument all the time, but Jesus doesn't say anything about it. Does anybody have a pesky red letter Bible? Don't answer that question because I'm about to have a go at it. Um, So I, I love the words that Jesus said, but some people have this red letter Bible that suggests that the words that Jesus said are more special than the black letter. 
You only know the red letters because the guy wrote the black letters as well. It's the same guy told you about them. The red letters can't be any more special logically than the black letters because the same guy wrote them all down. So we only know about the red letters because of all the black letters throughout the book. Either the whole book's holy or none of it is. Okay? Of course the stuff that Jesus said is really important, but we didn't have a tape recorder. We're relying on the black letter guy to tell us all about it. So the whole story is important. That was a tangent. Unnecessary, but I like to get it in. Um, so, <laughs> so Jesus talks in Mark 10, and he says this, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. He really emphasizes that point. So Jesus does talk about it because it goes back to Genesis and sets out the framework. Because I'm not trying to load Genesis 2 all by myself. Jesus is loading that up as the framing text for what relationships look like. Male, female, exclusive relationship. Jesus condemns pornea in a number of places. Pornea we get pornography from. So uh, the graphy of pornography is the, is the graphics and the pornea is the sexual immorality. So he says sexual immorality is long, wrong in a couple of places. Well, any listener is going to know that that would include same-sex relationships as well as a range of other things like adultery. He doesn't have to go into all the detail. He doesn't go down the list and say, by sexual immorality, I mean the following 16 things. Everybody knew that. So the notion that Jesus doesn't condemn, it's just daft to me. I'm sorry, but it is. Um, so Jesus does talk about what the framework looks like. He does condemn any kind of sexual immorality. And then Paul begins to unpack that in probably the better known passages in Romans and in Corinthians and in 1 Timothy. It's not about all the detail, but I will uh, just say this very briefly. So 1 Corinthians 10, he talks about people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And again, it's the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, and men who practice homosexuality. That phrase for men who practice homosexuality is a kind of strange one. It talks about both the active and the passive parties in homosexuality. It uses two very unusual words. The Bible's not afraid of detail. If when it wants to, it says, hey, that's a problem. Not acceptable. And so it uses these two words to try and communicate the two partners involved in a same-sex relationship. 1 Timothy talks about it in its terms of slave traders, liars, murderers, fornicators, uh, and, and, and others. And includes in that another of those phrases for homosexuality. Uh, for the homosexual sorry, activity, just to be clear. And then Romans 1, perhaps the most famous passage, Romans 1, 24. Where my marker seems to have fallen out from. Oh no, is it there? Romans 1, 24 to 28. Then God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way also their men, giving up natural intercourse with women, they were consumed with passion for one another, i.e. for other men. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Paul's really clear again. Talks about it in pretty clear terms. Sometimes in language that we're like, that's a bit awkward, what's that doing in the Bible? It's being clear. Homosexual activity is not acceptable to God. Some people say, oh, it's about, it's about children. There's no mention of children there. Some people say it's about temple worship. It's nothing to do with temple worship in that context. Some people say, oh, it's about unnatural homosexuality, i.e. heterosexual people having homosexual relationships. Again, it just doesn't make sense of the text. And so in these five passages, 
uh, where it's talked about the Bible or the five ways. So it's uh, Genesis, Leviticus, and then Paul's three passages are the main ones. Um, but Jesus reinforces all of this. Homosexual behavior is condemned. There's no other way to read that. But not orientation, and that is incredibly important to me. It's a really, uh, so homosexual, being homosexual is a state. It's an orientation. Having spent some time with the LGBT community locally um, and others in that uh, more globally, a person who has a homosexual orientation might not express that. And by contrast, you can engage in a homosexual act and have a heterosexual orientation. It's the action the Bible always condemns. There are people who define and describe themselves in all sorts of ways in our current culture. It's not being gay that's a problem in the Bible. It's, it's the act in that moment. And so people think, oh, you're obsessed with act and you're obsessed with same-sex practice. No, that's the thing the Bible condemns. And we have to be careful with the language and say that. That has huge implications because the whole debate about what it means to be gay, are you born with it, is it nature or is it nurture, becomes largely secondary at that point. The important thing is not how you got your orientation, it's what you do with it. That's hugely disputed within the gay community. The majority voice we hear is Ryan and Macklemore. I can't change even if I wanted to. I was born this way. That's not the sole view within the community. There are a large number of thinkers, and um, people like Andrew Pierce, who writes for the Daily Mail. Um, oh, the guy who writes, Matthew Paris, who writes for the Times. They wouldn't accept that narrative. Both gay and both would say, I chose this. So either way, that's not what the Bible's interested in, your orientation. The Bible is saying practice is wrong. And so that is a big part of that I can't change even if I wanted to. Do we accept that to be true? No, because then there's no room for transformation in our lives. That radically undercuts the gospel. That's why I wanted to start with that. That's about the most challenging song that I think I can put out there in terms of the gay community. That is incredibly powerful. We need to learn from it as a way of communicating with people. But it's simply not true. The next slide shows a picture of some guys from, or might show the Living Out logo. Uh, We have brought over some of the folks who work with Living Out. It's a great organization. There's people like uh, Vaughn Roberts. For some reason, I couldn't remember his surname for a minute. There are three or four uh, Anglican ministers who are involved in that. So Vaughn Roberts, Sam Albury, uh, Ed Shaw, various people who would say they're same-sex attracted but they don't practice. So for three of those guys, the solution is celibacy. That's their response. That's hard. It was hard for Vaughn in particular, very conservative, well-known speaker to come out and say, do you know what? I'm primarily attracted to men. I've tried to pray that away and over 10, 15, 20 years now, no change. But I've got a group of guys who keep me accountable and make sure, and I have no interest in practicing that. That is wrong. That's what the Bible's told me. And I'm going to live celibately. Sean is another one of their friends. He teaches at St. Miletus. Sean is married to a woman. They have three kids. He would say his primary attraction is still to other men. But he and his wife have journeyed what it is to be married to each other and to have kids together. And so different people respond. Those guys are responding slightly differently. Jeanette has lived for 20, 30 years as a lesbian within that community and then encountered Jesus later in life. And her response again is celibacy. And so living out or pioneering what it means to live biblically in response to being same-sex attracted. I can't fully understand what that means. But I love chatting to those guys and understanding and being able to engage. Because when I meet those from the gay community, I'm saying, I'd love you to have a conversation with Sam or Ed or Vaughn or somebody within that community. I realize I'm asking a huge sacrifice because that's what the Bible is asking. It's asking us all to make different types of sacrifice. But the only response 
would be celibacy or in rare occasions where people have some sort of change in the strength or the direction of their orientation. The other book on the right is A War of Loves. That is coming out next week by a guy called Dave Bennett who lives now in Oxford. He is an Australian and he raised again in the gay rights world, was a big part of that. And he says, the gay rights world tells you this, you're special, you're amazing. And that really appealed to him, it drew him in. And he was an, ad, uh, an activist, he was really involved in that. And then one day he was sitting in a bar in Sydney in Australia. And a girl came in and she said, do you believe there's a God? She said, you know, I believe in something, but I'm a, homose- I'm a homosexual. So look, whatever you're selling, I'm not interested. And she said, have you experienced the love of God? And he's like, What? You can't experience the love of God. And she said, I don't usually do this, but I feel I really have to pray for you. And she began to pray. And he said, I heard this voice and said, do you want me? Do you want me? Do you want me? And he understood it to be the voice of God. And he said, yes. And dramatically, basically, he met Jesus in a pub in Sydney while a gay rights activist, because a girl sat down and said to him, do you believe there is a God? And so he became a Christian, he's journeyed through that, he's written this book, he's releasing it, it's big, it's just been released in the States, it's coming here, Tom Wright has written part of the foreword to it, Um, I have not read the book but I've read all the reviews of it because I can't get it until next week, Uh, but I know David a little bit and he said, look, Jesus died on the cross for me and so I gave God my homosexuality. Um, There's a variety of people, Rico Tice, lots of people endorsing this saying, this is the book I want to give to my friends within that community because this is somebody who's deeply emerged in it and came to faith and radically transformed out of it. Sam and Ed and Vaughn, some of the guys I've talked about, were raised in the church and were wrestling with how to respond to that. This somebody who came from right outside, right into the midst of it. Amazing. And so those stories of transformation are hugely important because Ryan and Macklemore's song is fundamentally wrong. It's catchy. It tells a great story that works for a lot of people and they're, they're captivated by it. But the notion that I can't change is just wrong. And we in the church make two mistakes. One is we say, get yourself cleaned up before you come in here. As if you can do that. We undermine the power of the gospel. We say, get tidied up. Get off drugs. Get off alcohol. Get your sexual orientation sorted out. And then come to church. That's tragically bad. That's just not the gospel. It undermines what the gospel is going to do. And the other is to say, hey, come here and just stay as you are. Also undermines the transforming part of the gospel. Hey, just come. That's fine. You crack on the gay lifestyle. You crack on getting drunk. You crack on having affairs. No, 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 because it's transformed our lives. And that's what we want to see happen to other people. So this is always going to be a message of hope. It's hard and it's tough because the culture has shifted so radically. I was talking to my wife on the way down here tonight. She was talking about being in the refugee camp. She was saying they gave a bottle of water to this guy and he goes into the next tent. And he's got nothing at this stage. And they give him a bottle of water and he goes into the next tent and this lady's coughing and he just hands over the bottle of water. He said, everything they do is community-orientated. There's just not the individual mindset that we have. We're so deeply embedded now in a Western story of individualism. When you go to other cultures which are much more community-orientated, he said, kids just come and cling on your leg and walk around and no parent seems to care. It's not that they don't care. It's that they know they're in a larger community where everybody's parenting each other's kids in a different way. But we are so individualized in our mindset that you the parent responsible for your child would you get a bottle of words for you your sexual orientation is about you and we're we're just so deeply ingrained it's hard to get out of our story and begin to understand the wider implications of the gospel story having said all that let me just say a few tips on that and then we'll speak quickly on gender and move on so the next slide says 
We need to make it easier to talk about sexual orientation. This cannot be the taboo subject in our church. The LGBTQ community, the Q used to be queer and is much more questioning. They say, if you've got questions, come to us. Guess what? In a school, that's very powerful. And the SU tends to say, hey, if you've got questions, go and sort yourself out and then come and see us. So which community are you going to go to if you're questioning your sexual orientation? Which one makes you feel safer? LGBTQ. So you go there and that community welcomes you in and then it begins to shape and form you and that's just the reality. So we need to get better at providing a welcome. We need to honour singleness. Because for many people, celibacy is the outcome of those kind of career decisions. Or choices, sorry, not career. Choices. And yet we tend to raise up the nuclear family, marriage and 2.2 kids. Not that anybody actually has 2.2 kids, of course. Um, but we raise that up as if that's the dream ticket. That's it. And if you're not that, well, you know. So we need to get much better at saying singleness is absolutely great. You're totally involved in a huge family. That was the idea for Paul. That was the idea for Jesus. But we've said, no, it's really got to be marriage. No, it's amazing and it's wonderful most of the time. But singleness is also really good. <laughs> See, my wife's safely far away. Um, we need to remember we're part of a church family because that's what it looks like to be single and to be married and to be an extended family and to be a single mom and to be divorced and to be all sorts of things because we're part of a big, messy family. And we look after each other and we help each other out. And we need to be really careful about the kind of models we do of, 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 of what it is to be male and what it is to be female, particularly as we move into the trans stuff. And we need to provide incredible pastoral support. This is a hard journey. Those guys have made that choice on celibacy. That's tough. Sean, who's married... And it's not his primary attraction. He's still primarily attracted to males. Like, that's a big call for he and his wife. They're 15, 20 years into marriage now, but that's still tough. These are hard choices people are making, and we need to offer sufficient support. It's not enough just to say, we don't like that. We've got to tell a better story. We've got to say, come and be part of this big extended family. We all have problems, and we're all supporting one another. And if we're serious about that, that's the story we have to tell. Rather than the don't do it, start with the fall story that we have. And it isn't good enough it's not biblical enough so switch gear to gender we'll do a very accelerated version <laughs> let's talk about gender we're not really talking about gender we're talking about sex or is it gender biological sex gender social construct what is it the trans debate just a few minutes and then we'll see what you guys want to ask in questions right i'm way off notes where are we let's talk about gender trans is everywhere trans is a really dominant narrative you picked up your newspaper this morning daily mail front page uh, 17 trans kids in one school. Sunday Times has a story every single week <laughs> challenging the trans narrative. They're one of the few papers that do. This is everywhere. And it's huge. And it's a big issue. A majority of schools in Northern Ireland have a trans kid. Once that happens, that reframes the entire debate and, and narrative in that school. It's not like LGBT where you just say, if you're, sorry, LGB. Well, if you're gay, that's okay. That's your story and that's your moment. And we think about that. This has implications for uniform policy, toilet policy, and how everybody addresses that kid. Shapes everything immediately. It's huge. Um, I mean, all the transcripts here in Northern Ireland is part of a piece of research we're doing. And there's a resource coming in a couple of weeks that EA are putting out across the UK on this. I've been working on. The best thing I heard was this. If you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. No two experiences are the same. If any of you know or engaged or have come across somebody who's trans, their story is going to be different than virtually everybody else's story who's trans. It's tough. It's hard. But what those groups all told me was they hoped the church would be a place of welcome, even if they didn't know what else to say. These are some of the most marginalized people in our society. 
they're the most misunderstood. And yes, the narrative's changing quickly in the stories and it's in the media. But here's three things. Let's, let's talk about what it is to be trans. Let's flick on, keep going a couple of slides. Next. See if these ones pop up. Three parts of what it is to be trans. See, can we click? Yes. There are a small number of people, 15,000 in the UK have gender dysphoria, where they experience their gender identity differently than their biological sex. For those people, for any psychologists and psychiatrists that I've spoken to around that, and the people who experience in family, that's very real. They don't want it. There's nothing they can do. It's like depression or anorexia. It's not the same, but it has similarities. It's not chosen in any way, and it is deeply, deeply ingrained in them, and, they, and it's so difficult. But they get lost in the current debate. Those small 15,000 number of people. By those who are gender incongruent to a degree, uh, it could be a phase, it could be something going on, and those then this wider ideological movement that is trying to fundamentally redefine what it is to be male and female in our society. There's a strange contradiction at the core of the trans movement. There's like two groups at odds with each other. One says sex and gender are binary. I have a male body and my sex is male, but I feel that I want to be female. That only makes sense if there is another gender, female. You have to have the binary, you have to have the two. I feel like I'm in the wrong body, so I want to move to this other body. Okay, so that requires the binary too. But for all the people who are gender fluid, gender queer, pangender, they think it's on a spectrum. They reject the binary and think everybody's trans or nobody's trans. It's all on a spectrum. There's no such thing as sex as traditionally understood, male and female. They want to eradicate that. They're trying to deconstruct the whole thing. And so those two groups are at odds with each other. You all look confused. You're right. It's really, really confusing. It is weird. It is fundamentally at odds. Um, and it's a kind of strange space to be in and talk to some of the people. So I've met a lot of the transcripts and I've begun to understand this, some of this confusion. I'm going to skip the next slide, but I'll let you see it just for a second. Let's flick to that. You'd love to hear about radical feminism, post-structuralism, queer theory and cultural Marxism. But these are the streams. This didn't happen by accident. Let me just say this. Some of these ideas, radical individualism, where I get to make my own choices. Consumerism, where I can buy anything, including my identity. Deconstructionism is literally just burrowing in under every single piece of language. So when I say marriage, somebody wants to redefine that. When I talk about sex and gender, somebody wants to redefine it. The beginning of life, the end of life. I'm in so many conversations where I have so many explanatory notes, bits and brackets to explain what I mean. It's almost impossible to have a conversation. Do you remember that time in the Bible when people couldn't talk to each other? Torah Babel. It's kind of like Babel at the minute out there. Every single sentence I would use in the media has to be re-explained and understood in a post-truth world where Donald Trump can claim X number of people being at his inauguration and nobody knows what's true. I spoke to a major statistician who was at the event. He's like, I don't know how many people were there. We're in this world where we can just make up almost anything. That's Babel all over again. We can't converse with one another. We haven't got a mixed up language. We think we're speaking the same language. We think we're both speaking English. But the reality is we're just going past each other. And it's a real complicated world. And trans is one of those. But it didn't happen by accident. And technology is allowing the speed of change to come really, really quickly. So I'll not, but we can answer questions of anything on any of those. But what they're trying to do is just deconstruct to, to, to tear down 
the traditional way we've understood each other. Male, female, married, have kids, extended family. Just pull all that apart. Christianity is the underpinning for our system. Just pull it all down. Just wreck it. And they're not actually trying to build anything else. That's what took me a while to learn. They just want to deconstruct everything. Tear it apart. Chaos reigns. Next slide. So what does the Bible have to say? Well, I think our creation, fall, redemption, restoration narrative is really important. If you click, yeah. I think the body, the Bible has a really high view of the body. You see, the problem with that story that I said about Craig is that we're going to save his soul. It's not what the Bible talks about. 1 Corinthians talks about the body being the temple of the Holy Spirit. The body being resurrected. Jesus is resurrected bodily. We were made in bodies. It's not that I inhabit a body. That I, Peter, am some this inner me, and then I inhabit this body currently. I, my body, am one. This is my very way of being in the world. Sometimes we Christians with our language of souls didn't help. Because what you get now is people saying, well, there's an inner me, a real me. And then there's my outer body, and my outer body's wrong and confused, but the real me's fine. That's what the Corinthians said. The Corinthians said, hey, we can have sex with whoever we like because the inner me's not having it. It's just my outer body. And Paul said, aren't you nuts? That's the message version. Don't you know your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit? Hello, wake up, smell the coffee, guys. And then unpacked this whole theology of the importance of the body. Like our bodies are who we are. They're not add-ons that we get to change. It's a form of Gnosticism, the word you might have seen on the previous slide. Gnosticism said not only is there a secret inner knowledge, but somehow the inner me is real and this outer world is, well, so-so. That's, for those of you who are interested, linked to Platonism, that's just fundamentally anti-Christian. Christianity said, no, 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 there's only one me. It's all together. The Hebrews just couldn't have understood that separation that we now have. So, Bible says body, it's really important and we inhabit it. Sex and gender are really important from Genesis right through. There was the male and the female in Genesis 1 and they became the Ish and the Isha in Genesis 2, the man and the woman. They developed into that. We are sexed beings. We're male and female. There's no other way to understand it. Um, And it rejects much of this individualist culture that says we can choose things, we can change who we are, uh, and that Gnostic view that we're somehow trapped in the wrong body. How do you, let's click ahead, how do you respond to somebody who's trans if you were to meet them and engage them? I think Jesus at the well in John 4 gives a really great model. If we're meeting on any situation, but particularly this, what does Jesus do first? There's a moment of compassion. Meets this woman at the well when nobody else is there. He's gone out of his way to meet her in the middle of the day. And then they start this conversation. You know, he is the male, and essentially he's the kind of the white male power broker in the situation. He opens up the conversation. It's completely compassionate engagement about getting water out of the well. And then there's an integrity moment. He says, Go and get your husband. She said, I have no husband. He says, That's true. You had five husbands in the man you're with. It's not your husband. That's a pretty stark, brutal conversation. And then sends her off, she goes into town, because it's ultimately redemptive. She brings everybody from the village and says, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. And they all came and they met Jesus. Now Jesus does that in an afternoon. That's WWJD, one afternoon, two hours. We'll probably take a few months, most times, in those encounters. But we start with compassion. Start with compassion. We've got to welcome them in. We've probably got to use the name that they want to use. And they prefer, I have no problem using the name of the people from the trans community, their name, their preferred name. I've been on occasions where I didn't know they were trans. I thought they were an advocate. Turns out later on the conversation became clear they had transitioned years ago. That doesn't bother me. I don't think I'm buying into the worldview, but I do ultimately want to move to an integrity conversation to ask some questions. But 
I always want it to be redemptive. So we've got our compassionate friends who just stop at compassion. It's not good enough. Then we've got our friends who want to go to integrity first and shout that. That's not enough. Jesus doesn't stop there. It's always, always got to be redemptive. Because that's our experience. And if it's not, well, we need to come and get some prayer ministry at the end. But seriously, if our experience of Jesus has not been redemptive, then we're never going to share that with other people. And if it has, if he has transformed and redeemed our lives, then that's what we're going to bring to any community of any, anybody from anyone. Same-sex attracted, trans, wrestling with greed, wrestling with breakdown, breakthrough, whatever's going on in their lives. That's always the message we want to bring them. Final slide. Let's click maybe two. Yeah, this is really just, just, just this is the cultural trend we are speaking into. The thing in the Daily Mail today, I think it was in it too, was saying, not only these 17 kids in one school, there's a, there's a massive correlation with autism, which is unresearched to any serious degree, um, but also that we will look back in 20 years and realize this was one of those moments where society got this deeply wrong. What is being prescribed to many people is tragic. Small number of genders for you definitely need to do a lot of work around. The larger movement, crazy. 82-year-old lady in the papers today had, had, trans, uh, had surgery. So... Referral rates have gone up massively. What's the big trend? It used to be five-year-old boys on average. Five, six, seven-year-old boys, the majority, almost two-thirds, were younger and boys, so born boys, wanting to become females. It is now closer to 70% teenage girls. In five years, it's just shifted from young boys to teenage girls. That's crazy. Okay, so first thing you do if you're remotely interested in science and evidence is what? More research. Why did that happen? What's the one thing you're not allowed to do? More research. Nobody can question that narrative. The one person who's tried has had their paper pulled down and nobody's prepared to talk about it. She's not a Christian, nothing. She's at a liberal arts college in the US. Everybody's so scared of this. That's, that's really, really worrying. And here's the thing. When you were a five, six, seven-year-old boy, there was basically nothing they could do except wait until you are a bit older. Then you would go on blockers and then possibly cross-sex hormones. 80% of people... They appear at one of those clinics before adolescence, go back to their birth sex. So now you start putting this all together. It was mainly five-year-old boys, five, six, seven-year-old boys. There's not much they could do except wait, and 80% of those would return to their birth gender. Now it's teenage girls, so they're at 16, 17. So they can go on the hormones almost immediately, and post-adolescence, 80% go through with surgery. That's from the Tavistock Clinic, the main clinic. Those are not my, that's, that's the reality. So now you see what the issue is. So when you're coming young, you have to wait. There's no choice. And slowly it begins to seem to correct. Not all, but a large number. And then when you have teenage girls. Now the real problem with teenage girls is rapid onset gender dysphoria. In no way can gender dysphoria be considered, described as contagious in any traditional sense. But there is a social contagion effect. So why is it that in one school you'll suddenly have three, four, five, next school seem to have none? Why has this girl got 17? There are real strange trends that nobody wants to talk about. Now, in one sense, that's beyond us unless we're teachers or we're medics or we're in that space. We need to be aware of some of this stuff. But if the church doesn't ask questions and join with other groups, so who are my best friends in this debate at the minute? Radical lesbians, radical feminists, fundamental Christians. What a strange motley crew we are. (laughs) We are the bunch asking the questions. The lesbians, because they believe they're being eradicated, So Jeanette, who I spoke about earlier, who became a Christian later in life after 20 or 30 years in the lesbian lifestyle, if she was young now, 
she would say she was interested mainly in power and what it was to be male. That's what attracted her to lesbianism. This is too much for you to switch off for 10 seconds. But what? So now if she described her same symptoms, she would be told she's trans and to transition to become male. Because what interested her was being the dominant partner in the relationship, the power. So she now thinks that if she was around... So she speaks to a lot of teenage girls about that now, saying, I know what it's like to be where you are. Don't do what you're thinking of doing. Or pause or wait. Because she was able to reverse her move, if you like, having lived as lesbian. If she had taken surgery, that would have been radically different for her. And she is one of those people saying, caution, caution. And so it's a difficult message to bring. It's a real complex subject. Um, And maybe that was a bit overwhelming. But... um, I think there's huge moments where we have to try and bring clarity. So I think our messages are around compassion and around clarity and around raising some of those concerns. The very right to be a woman is being eradicated. Jermaine Greer, the leading feminist, argues. You're no longer um, single-sex spaces being taken away, young girls being driven towards these kind of treatment options. And although it would be a strange bedfellow for me, the right to be a lesbian is even being eradicated. That's the big claim. So we make these strange alliances with people to raise some of these concerns. Ultimately, reluctantly, what an adult chooses to do with their own money is up to them, in my view. I have concerns about the state funding that, and I have massive concerns about under-18s and what's being done. And I think we should have those questions. So in two weeks, there'll be a resource out on the EA page. There'll be some videos. I videoed a pastor here whose dad transitioned at the age of 62, Fascinating, I'm videoing Jeanette next week as part of that suite of resources to help us understand this issue better, to equip us to talk. But let me say this, and then questions, is we have to tell a richer, fuller story. That's why I wanted to start what I did. I think that song is really, really effective and catchy. The reason is because I speak about it and use it sometimes, and it's in my head. Man, is it powerful and good at what it does. And we have not learned to do our response well enough yet in telling our story better, because people can change. Because Jesus really is the answer. Because the gospel works. But we have to tell our own stories of redemption. We have to be vulnerable and say, do you know what? There was stuff messed up in my life and Jesus changed that. And it took time and it was a discipleship journey. I was just saying to Craig last week in our church, my brother, who's very successful, runs our family business, 500 plus staff, got up and talked about when he hit the wall as a 30-year-old and when he broke down and when he realized he couldn't go on. He wasn't sleeping and he wasn't functioning. And he had to own that up and just say that. And he broke down in front of our church and just shared that story. That's not easy to do if you're an alpha male, as he is. Um, but it has to be done. And it gave permission for other people to say, I'm not sleeping. I'm struggling. I'm under a lot of stress and pressure. And I'm feeling burnout. And we have to be able to do that. Because ours is a story of hope. It's a story of grace and truth. As Craig said at the start, it's a story of love. And it's a story of Jesus radically encountering a guy in the pub. We don't convert somebody's sexuality. That's not our job. It's Jesus' job. We are the person in the pub, the girl in that pub, who said, do you believe in Jesus? Can I pray with you? The rest is up to him. Now, it might be as part of a larger church team, we do some discipleship around that, but largely that's his work. Our job is to just do the first thing. Hey, do you believe in Jesus? Can I pray with you? And let's see if he shows up and what he does in their lives. That's the story of radical transformation. That's why I think Dave's book's incredibly effective. I think it's going to be really powerful because we've got to tell better stories into this culture that change and transformation does happen in the name of Jesus. Thank you.